our first passage is going to be Acts 13.5. Acts 13.5, but before I read it, I am going to pray. I ask God to give us wisdom and understanding from his word. Dear Lord, we thank you for your inerrant, infallible, sufficient, and authoritative scriptures. And as we read them, may we know what you said. May it make sense to us. May we be motivated to apply it diligently by your grace. Thank you for the fellowship of the saints and our opportunity to gather here today. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, we are right here. Verse 5 and 6 of Acts chapter 13. Now, on your handouts, I think there is a little map there. Last week, I, you know, I forgot to bring my pointer, but if you look, there is uh, some historical places here. Historical places, when they reached Salamis, they began to proclaim the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews. And they also had John as their helper. Remember John Mark? Okay. When they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they found a magician, a Jewish false prophet, whose name was Bar-Jesus. And we will be talking about some of the narrative unity of Luke Acts, as I've done all the way through Luke and Acts. I preached through Luke, so now I'm teaching through Acts. And it's amazing to see Luke's literary ability and writing. But one of the things that's thematic in Luke-Acts is confrontations that happen between gospel preachers, Christ and his apostles, and others associated with them, and occultists and magic, demonic activities, and weird things that happen. So there are these events in Luke-Acts. Now, let me give you a big picture of this before we go more into some of these confrontations. And I want to also set the stage for some of the themes that are developed in Luke that are fulfilled in Acts. These uh, confrontations, and uh, what happens is there are misinterpretations of these that create the idea that really what's at issue is therapy. And most of of error that gets propagated happens because of category errors. And I've mentioned that a lot. Let me uh, tell you what I'm talking about. A category error is when you take a fact or a statement or a study, or a historical event, and the writer is speaking about one category, and someone else interprets it and puts it into a different category. Now, I'm looking back at all the articles I've written about this, and it's probably the number one reason I get contacted through our critical issues commentary, is people looking for relief from curses, uh, problems, mental anguish, whatever it may be. Now, these confrontations 
like the Legion case, for example, the 2,000 spirits, Luke is telling us that if you have a worst-case scenario, which that was what that was in the Jewish way of looking at it, it couldn't be any worse, and Jesus can heal somebody who's in the worst condition that anybody could ever imagine anybody being in, then the point is that Christ can save anyone. And that Messianic salvation is not limited to what we might think it would be limited to, whether it's to people we wouldn't think God would save, like Samaritans, whether it's limited by how bad somebody's condition is, like the gathering, which, by the way, that was a pagan area. And Luke's point is the category messianic salvation as predicted in the prophets is on the scene of history. And that what God predicted in the prophets is happening through Jesus and his apostles. And I've been dealing with that in Ephesians, and I will again in a couple of weeks. The near and the far predicted in the Old Testament. So the point is that as we start these confrontations that happen as the gospel spreads, especially in Asian Minor, there are false teachers, demons, magicians, sorcerers, and people who really aren't part of the Christian church who are interacting with the world of the spirits. And the point isn't that Jesus has a better therapeutic process than somebody else. The point is that Jesus has all authority that he can actually bring release from sins and that people can be transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of God, no matter how great the darkness was. Okay, so we got to get the categories right. The people that write books about this are unknowingly, in some cases, presenting a pagan world view with a Christian veneer on it. And they think, we need to learn the names of the demons in order to get them to leave people. That's what they learned from the gathering. But that's not what Luke is teaching us. So they're unwittingly repeating a pagan worldview, and they don't even realize that's what they're doing. And so in our world today, as I, I'm introducing where we're going to be going here as the gospel heading toward Asia Minor, which is exactly where Ephesus is, where a lot of these things happen, and you see this in Ephesians, we need to realize that we're not coming from a pagan worldview. We're coming from a worldview of the sovereignty of God and his plan of messianic salvation that's carried on through Christ and his apostles and that through the gospel, anyone, anywhere, in any situation who believes can be freed from all things. And that's truly good news. Now, why do people resist that? Well, the the emails I get say, well, you're you're truncating, you're dumbing it down. You're not, you're not telling us everything. You're trying to make it too simple. Somebody mocked me and said, oh, you're pat answers. Well, my pat answer was Jesus saying that he can bring people from darkness to light. 
That's a pat answer. And the psychiatrist or the shamans have a better answer. That's really not what you should be saying about Christ and what he said he would do. Yes, Brother yeah, I'm Harry. Try, I think, I think what, I actually wrote some notes, and I want to make sure I've written my notes correctly. I think that what, what, what we take away is that the first step in studying Scripture is you have to read carefully and, and understand exactly what's being said and not read more into it and not read less into it. Read yeah. exactly what's there. And then, only then, can you make a correct application or implication. Yeah, people the authorial intent. Yeah, yeah. What is Luke telling us? And Luke is very, very good, it, it, once you understand how to read Luke Acts, at making it clear what he's telling us. But sometimes we haven't been very good readers. And so I would be very happy if God could use me to teach the church how to read. I remember I had uh, in seminary a, a Dr. Stein who ended up writing a great book on hermeneutics. And then I had other people that I looked at. Somebody said, well, this isn't specifically Christian. It's learning how to read. And somebody said, why don't you get a book called How to Read a Book? And it was written by a scholar. And then he, he made us read E.D. Hirsch, which was really hard because it was for doctrinal students in the English language, the validity interpretation. But it was all a fancy way of saying the writer determines the meaning. And you might say, well, of course, everybody believes that. No, they don't. Do you watch political debate? Over half of our country thinks the meaning of the Constitution is determined by the reader, not the writer. What about liberalism in theology? They believe the meaning of the Bible is determined by the reader, not the writer. And so I wrote a chapter about that in my book, and I pointed out, no, if that were the case, everything that humans do on the face of the earth would come to a grinding halt. And proof of that is the Tower of Babel. Why am I saying that? Because once the languages can were confused they couldn't do anything they couldn't tell each other how to proceed with their project so the person that knew what to do or was telling them what to do couldn't communicate to the hearer now if if meaning is a state of consciousness and it's not objective it wouldn't matter if the reader determines the meaning it doesn't even matter if you understand the language oh here somebody said blah 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 you don't understand it well, I know what that means to me. But see, you can't have a civil justice system. You can't have laws. You can't have education. You can't have traffic flowing on streets without running into each other. You cannot have a family, a home, a church, anything, if the reader or hearer determines the meaning. Because to one person, red means stop at a tra- stop traffic, and the other person, it means go. Now, how many accidents would you have? Okay, so I just did that when I debated emergent. And despite the fact that they could not even try to defend what they were doing, they just go right back to it. So they have a bifurcation between religion 
where communication is invalid and it's all subjective, and all the rest of life where you just kind of, oh, yeah, we do know red means stop. Okay, yes. Yeah, I was wondering about these people that think that they can interpret just like, how do I interpret it? Uh, but it's it's the writer that interprets the meaning. I mean, if you get a uh, instruction manual on how to use uh, whatever, a computer, a car, a camera, a vacuum cleaner, whatever, I mean, it says this is what you do, and you can't say, well, I'm, how do I interpret that? Well, I mean, right, you, that's the point. Yeah. Because... It's unworkable in every other arena. But see, the allegorical method of Bible interpretation that was adopted in the Middle Ages is an attack against that. You couldn't have the Roman Catholic Church even exist if you believed in Scripture alone and that the Scripture means what it says and that no one can add to it. And then Luther's great point that he came up with that all scriptures should be translated into the common vernacular of the people. Because if the people can read the scripture, they can find out that somebody's pulling a, a hood over their head. Or, I got, what metaphor was I trying to say? Wool over their eyes. Wool, the wool over their eyes. I don't know. I said, you get the idea. Yes, Eric. You know, there's a, there's a great passage that talks about the fact that no one is entitled to their own interpretation. The battle that Bob and I were fighting back with Bethel Seminary when I was going there was Bethel Seminary was given over to postmodernity. What postmoderns are saying is not that there is no truth, it's that it can't be accessed. And because you can't access truth, the reader defines the meaning of a text, not the writer. So, therefore, the biblical text, like the Constitution, can mean anything you want it to mean. Well, there's a passage that just directly refutes that. It's in Second Peter, if you turn to it, Second Peter 1.20. As you turn to Second Peter 1.20, the debate is, Peter says Jesus is coming back, the apostles. False teachers in Asia Minor saying, no, he's not. He's not coming back. You've misread the scriptures. So the debate is over interpretation. Well, listen to what Peter says. Second Peter one twenty, he says, knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from one's own interpretation. For no prophecy, now here's who produced it, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So there's a direct passage where Peter's saying, look, the author of Scripture Amen. is God. He grounds the meaning. And the proof that Peter and the apostles were right is they were on the Mount of Transfiguration where they had their interpretation authenticated by God himself. And that's how you can know, no, Jesus is coming back. They have the proper There's a voice from heaven saying, exactly. this is my son, listen to him. Exactly. Which was God saying, this is the one Moses prophesied about, Amen. the prophets prophesied about, and which you see even in the Psalms and in Second Samuel 7. Right. The son came. Okay. So... I know this, and for me, having been in different movements, including one that the person with the most clever reading was the preacher, not the one who got it the way the Bible was intended back in the 70s. The more clever somebody was in allegorizing, the more popular they were 
to be a speaker. Now, this is utterly essential. Here's why. When Hebrews said the word of God is sharper than a two-edged sword, and it divides asunder even thoughts and intents of the heart, it pierces to the inner parts of the person. It brings conviction of sin. It sanctifies. It illuminates the truth. It gives us reason why we're going to change and why we have hope. And I believe with all my heart that if I put, as a preacher, all the effort into making sure I understand what the author said, and then presenting it so that people get that, that what's going to change people is not me being clever. Oh, yes. He told me if I said, oh, yes, I got free coffee. I used to say that. I must have forgot I did that. Anyhow, it's not me being clever, but God will do what he said he would do. He is going to work through the message preach, even if it seems foolish to man. There's the irony that Paul used. And he'll save. He'll sanctify. He'll cause us to have a biblical worldview. Coming up with an allegory that nobody else could have dreamed of is powerless. Okay, because there's a category error. I mentioned in a sermon, and I'll go to Christy. Jesus said, I came to give you peace. My peace I give you, not as the world gives. Peace, Irene in the Greek, shalom in Hebrew. Peace. What does the author mean? Salvation. Shalom means salvation and well-being, but well-being is not there if you don't know God. There's no peace for the wicked, right? How do you make a category error and get a big crowd? See, I used to talk about Robert Schuller because he was the one, but he's not on the scene of history, and I found out there are young people that don't even know who Robert Schuller is. So we're going to go to Joel Osteen. Here's how a category error deceives the church. Jesus is talking about forgiveness of sins, redemption, and salvation, being right with God. The category error takes the category of salvation and turns it into mental serenity. And it's now you're talking about, you're using the same word, but it's, you're equivocating. Okay. And so somebody like a Joel Osteen, I just say his name, not just to pick on him, but there are many, many like it, who teach human wisdom. And they say, if you come to my seminar, I'll give you seven steps to have a peaceful family. And then some of it might be good or bad or whatever it may be. I don't, do you get my point? Rick Warren does that, the SHAPE program. How, how to be happy, how to have serenity, how not to get angry, all of which is fine. But it's not what the Bible was talking about. Peace with God means reconciled enemies, not serenity of mind. And the serenity as a mental state is not unique to Christianity. We all know people who are very calm very peaceful, very happy, who would never believe the gospel. And so if you get the category here, then you're not even preaching to them. See, well, you need serenity of mind. 
Yeah, I, I love that. I have that. I think, thankfully, I learned that from my family, and we don't take anything too seriously. And steady Eddie, easy as she goes. Don't rock the boat. No problem here. And so you're telling them they need to be saved, and they're thinking, no, I don't need to be saved because I already have what Joel Osteen is talking about. Do you see why you don't want to make the category error? We've got to know what the author is telling us and why. Yes, uh, Christy. Just a, a question I've always um, wondered. Is the Trinitarian God the author of Scripture? Is the Holy Spirit specifically the author of Scripture? Is there any way to, to understand or know that? Well, the, um, it's not really possible to uh, divide up the Trinitarian God of the Bible, totally. The Holy Spirit inspires the biblical writers, but the work of the Holy Spirit and the work of Christ and the work of the Father are all done in conjunction with one another. Um, Eric, you can talk about that. I have it in a sermon I've written. I haven't preached yet. There's a Trinitarian verse we're coming up to in Ephesians where it talks about the Son, the Father, and the Spirit all in one verse. Go ahead and comment. Yeah, amen. Um, 2 Timothy three sixteen through 17, all scriptures God breathed, breathed out, and it's profitable for training, for teaching, rebuking, correction, training in righteousness of the man of God is equipped for every good work. The Holy Spirit is the one, as Bob said, who is the one who inspires the biblical authors. But think about Jesus is the word incarnate. And so I love that thinking about Jesus because Jesus is truly God, truly man. The word of God is truly written by men, but it's truly of God. Uh, And in the same way, so Christ, um, Bob points this out often, when he comes onto the scene of history as the word of God, he exegetes who the Father is. I think it is a Trinitarian work, but the Holy Spirit is specified as the one who is the one who gives the biblical authors the right. very words. Yep. Well, Jesus in John twelve forty eight, my word will be your judge at the last day. Amen, right. But somebody else actually wrote John. It, uh, John, the apostle, but it's his, still his word. Well, they don't like all the red letters because the red letters talk about hell and they don't believe in that. I said something about that. Red letters are the ones I don't like. Again, you're the reader determines. Now, let's read. Okay, I'm sorry. That was a long introduction. How do we read this? Why is it that there's this pattern of going first to the synagogues, as these missionaries did, and then out into the broader, broader culture? Well, this is a pattern that was begun by Jesus who sent them. So open your Bibles to Luke 4 because we got some passages we're going to look at. And we can see that Luke is purposely showing that the apostles, including Paul and their associates, are continuing the message of messianic salvation according to a pattern that already happened in Luke with Jesus at the beginning of his ministry. This is the beginning of them going out. In Luke, at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, the first place he goes, the synagogue. Which one? Synagogue is hometown. What happened there? They got all excited because somebody from their hometown doing all these miracles? Well, we'll see what happened. But uh, it's uh, something similar to what happened a lot of times to the apostles. Okay, Luke 4, 
in verse 15. And he began teaching in their synagogue and was praised by all. Okay, so it starts out very hopeful. Wow. Somebody from Nazareth is doing these things and teaching these ways. This is really great. He didn't uh, do a marketing survey to see how to keep that going. But instead, he preached what he was sent to preach by the Father as prophesied in Isaiah 61. So let's go to verse 17, and I'll read 17 through 20. You can look at it in your Bible. And the book of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him, and he opened the book and found where it was written. Now, they didn't have books like this back then. You probably know that, but maybe some don't. They had a big scroll. And it's hard to find things in scrolls. They have they kind of spin them nowadays. I don't know. They couldn't have been as big back then. That they happen to be there on their reading from the prophets. Have you heard that, Eric? Yeah, exactly. Go ahead. Dana, actually, Dana, do you, can you get the mic real quick about this? Dana has some insights as to how the synagogue operated. I think are interesting. If you okay, wouldn't mind sharing that, Dana. Well. The- <laughs> There's two Talmuds, you know, the Babylonian Talmud and what they call the Jerusalem Talmud, which is kind of a misnomer because it's really a, really in, from Tiberius. But, <laughs> but anyway, there, there's, a, there's a reading schedule of readings from the Torah and then also from the prophets. And there, the, the Babylonian Talmud uses a one-year reading schedule where they go through the whole Torah in a year. But the earlier uh, Jerusalem Talmud uses a three-year reading and in the in the uh, one year reading, which most Jewish people use today, that that passage from the prophets that, that Jesus read is not in there. But if you go back to the earlier three year reading plan, it is included. So included. I, I've always wondered if that three year reading plan was in use at the time of Christ in the first century, and if it if it was, then you could. You could determine exactly which Sabbath this occurred on. It's just an interesting thing. Yeah, thank you, thank you. I, I hope I got your name right. Are you Diane? I'm Linda. Linda. Yeah. Diane's my wife. (laughs) Yes, Linda and Brian. We go together. (laughs) They also. The scroll will be rolled as they go through the reading, and then they'll have the uh, special day when they get to the end, and it's a big ceremony when they rewind the scroll back to the beginning and then start the reading plan. Start it again. Over again. Yeah, when we first, we used to own this building. I'm sorry I I forgot your name, Linda. (laughs) But anyhow, uh, when we bought this building, we don't own it now, but we did it. The group I was with bought it back in 2005. And the, the little synagogue was right in here. And the rabbi asked me to come and see what they did. And they had their the scroll. And they had the oldest member. They, they honored the elderly. In fact, when we signed documents to buy a building, they had their oldest person there to show that they honored us and they trusted us. The oldest one was there. And it was time to read a certain scroll, so they carried it around and brought it up. And the older fellow 
So there, there were people spinning it. So it's going by. And he'd go, because they were trying to read from whatever that reading was, got to the one he wanted. There it is. And then he would read it. So I would say here, it was handed to him. The way Luke says it tells me he didn't start. Uh, he, it was probably the prophets, obviously, because you couldn't put it all in one big scroll, as Dana was talking about. And he found this place, but it's about him. So however that happened, here's what he read. It was written, Luke four eighteen: The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed and to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. He closed the book, gave it back to the attendant and sat down in the the eyes of all the synagogue were fixed on him. Now, we've talked about this before. Eric is somewhat of an expert in Isaiah. Could you explain what was read, Eric? What wasn't read? The significance of what wasn't read and the significance of what was. Yeah, the, the quotations out of Isaiah 61. In fact, if you, it, it might be worth just turning there because I want to just show them. It's easy to see what he doesn't read. Isaiah 61.1. Yep, Isaiah 61.1. If you turn there, it's very interesting to see what Jesus read and, like Bob said, what he left off on. <clears throat> and so here in Isaiah 61.1, Jesus is showing that he's the anointed one. He's anointed by the Spirit. Isaiah 61.1, he says, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because... Yahweh has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted. Now notice, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, that's where he stops. But notice the next part of the verse, and the day of vengeance of our God. The day of vengeance. So that day of vengeance comes at Jesus' second advent. He comes at his first advent to bring salvation. And so that's why I think he leaves off at that point. Yes, because let's, uh, let me go back to look, get my Bible here, back to Luke 4. Because had he not left off, then what he says next wouldn't have made a lot of sense, would it? Back to Luke 4 now. So that was from Isaiah 61, verse 21. And he began saying to them, today, as you listen, this scripture has been fulfilled. So the day of vengeance wasn't fulfilled, but the rest was fulfilled in the first advent. This is amazing. Luke knew what he was writing about. Okay. And so here's Jesus in his hometown in the synagogue reading as they would have been doing and announcing that he is the Messiah that the favorable year of the Lord is a day of salvation. This is it. Today, this is fulfilled in your hearing. And so then he went on in verse 22. They were speaking well of him, amazed by his gracious word, amazed by the way it's thematic in Luke Acts that came from his mouth. Yet they said, isn't this Joseph's son? Then he said to them, no doubt you will quote, this proverb to me, doctor, heal yourself. So he's predicting how he's going to be treated so that all we've heard that took place in 
Capernaum, would do, you do here in your hometown also. And he has said, I assure you, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. I say to you, there's, there were certainly many widows in Israel in Elijah's day. And when the sky was shut up for three years and six months while a great famine came in the land, yet Elijah was not sent to any of them but to the widow of Zarephath. And so he goes on. And then look at verse 28. And all the crowds in the synagogue were filled with rage. The crowds are fickle, aren't they? (laughs) Oh, one of our boys is doing great. Then he says, uh, God goes to who he goes to, just like in the day of Elijah. And then they become enraged. Because they didn't like what he was saying. They wanted the reader to determine the meaning. Not the author who was standing there in front of them. God the Son, who this was about. And in verse 29, And they got up and drove him out of the city and led him to the brow of the hill on which their city had been built in order to throw him down the cliff. So they went to the synagogue. He went to the synagogue first. Before that, I mentioned last time I taught Sunday school, mighty deeds have been done. They don't want him because he's talking about God's prerogatives in salvation. They don't want to hear that. And so he's opposed. Now, in Luke X, this pattern is repeated again and again and again. And what Luke is telling us is that the apostles are carrying on the ministry of Jesus and obeying his commission that the gospel be preached in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the uttermost parts of the world. And that is exactly what happens in in Acts. And that it even happens along the same pattern as what happened in Jesus' ministry. Mighty deeds happen, but it's not necessarily definitive for the hearers because some have a hard heart. There's opposition. There was opposition when Jesus taught. Some believe and some do not. And so they start with the synagogues. Why? Because they already had the scriptures. They already had in their mind some of these categories, like the prophet Isaiah predicting the, the favorable year of the Lord. So it's a good starting point. Tell them this is it. This is what was predicted. This is the Messiah that God promised to you. Dear synagogue goers. And oftentimes in Luke Acts, the message is rejected in the synagogue. Not always. Not totally, because some are willing to search the scriptures, like the Bereans, to see if these things are true. And then they would go to the Gentiles. But there would also be opposition there. And some would believe and some wouldn't. And so the pattern is you go to the synagogues, you preach... You preach the scriptures, you go to the Gentiles and continue to march forward with the gospel spreading according to the pattern that Jesus had ordained and when he told them what he wanted them to do. Luke is telling us it actually happened. It actually happened in the same way. And Jesus predicted that as he'd been treated, so will they. It actually happened. So that's Luke's point. Now, in contrast, let me just say 
the, the, in making application. It's so hard for any person now to get a good seminary education because the seeker movement has poisoned the waters. Because people are taught, and it came with Eric and I can tell you a lot about it. We saw it come into where we were educated in the process of us being here. I, I was there before him. I saw it come in. They are starting to say that you've got to let the audience determine what you're going to do. And you start with a sociological study of the people that are on church. Now, again, category category shift. The Bible describes the lost as those who needed to be reconciled to God through the blood atonement. God is, there's hostility between God and man. I'm going to be preaching on that. I've got the sermon done for, for a couple of weeks from now. The sociology is a different category. So now you're talking about something totally different. So now we go over to sociology and we've learned that if you tell people that God is angry with their sin and that they're enemy of God and they need to be reconciled to God, you'll never get anybody to come to your church. You're going to be sitting there with an empty building. Well, church isn't a building. Did you know that? It's a group of the redeemed whose sins are washed away by the blood. And church and unchurch is a category shift. It's another example of the reader determining the meaning. Saved and lost are biblical categories. But that has been proven by the experts to not be a popular message. Now, again, Schuler was the one who made that a big deal. And he said the worst thing you could ever do was tell people about their loss of sinful condition. Don't do it. You'll turn them off. Think, think about how that worked out for Jesus in an earthly sense. Well, <laughs> if, see, that's he, what caused him to be rejected. Yeah, if he had taken a, a seminar or, or, you know, done a felt needs survey, I guess he would have said, well, you know, the Jewish people want the, uh, they want the Messianic age as they envisioned it with them, the conquering nation, and Jesus, the conquering yeah, king. Yeah, they wanted uh, the Messianic kingdom. Yeah, let's skip the church age and let's skip repentance yeah. and all that. Well, see, there's two whole sets of Old Testament prophecies. Eric, all of which is in the Old Testament, the ones about a suffering Savior and the ones about a millennial rule with, from Jerusalem. They didn't seem to go together now, either Dana or Eric, if you have something to add, feel free. And so they chose the one that was more favorable. The idea of the shedding of blood being done by the true Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, that was offensive. The cross is an offense. The crucified Jewish Savior was an offense. The idea of us being the head and not the tail and ruling over the nations with a Davidic king was favorable. And so we'll ignore these and follow these, or at least that's tended to happen. It turns out they're both true, but in a different way than they would have thought. The suffering Savior comes first. God breaks down the wall of separation, which I've been preaching about in Ephesians. We have the church age where all of these people from all of the nations, one by one, are added to the redeemed. And then later comes 
an actual millennial kingdom that Eric's been talking about here in Sunday school where he does rule. We don't have to rule any of it out, but they didn't anticipate. Go ahead, Eric, and then we'll go to Rich. Yeah, you know, um, one passage that does kind of delineate the chronology is Daniel 9, because in the 490 years, remember there's a 70 weeks prophecy? You have 483 years. It ends up being 173,880 days from the decree that Artaxerxes gives to rebuild Jerusalem and its walls to the coming of Messiah being cut off. Well, that happens in his Passion Week. When he comes riding in on Lamb Selection Day, I believe that that's the day. It's the 173,880th day. But then there's that seven years left over. That's pushed off for the 70th week of Daniel, the last seven years of tribulation. So in the 70 weeks prophecy, it delineates that Messiah comes first to be cut off. But then he comes as a conquering king, and he's going to set up this kingdom in Jerusalem forever and ever. So that passage does delineate it. But again, it's, it, it's, it's hard to see if you're longing to see all glory and not a suffering servant. Nobody wants to suffer. The Jews certainly didn't. And so that's why yes. they wanted all the glory. And by the way, we don't want to, as it says Romans 11, boast against anybody. Oh, exactly. We're the same way. We, I wouldn't have seen that no, in absolutely. that situation. We wouldn't fare any better. The, the culpability wasn't that they hadn't figured that out. The culpability was when it was happening on the scene of history through what Jesus said and did, and then you could know it. But then they said, we don't want to know that. We like the other way. There, there is the moral failure, not that they didn't figure it out on their own. But once Jesus came, now we can know. Yes, Rich. Well, I just, big turning point for me in Christianity is I really thought we were... Um, Salespeople, Christians, we're trying to get as many people as we possibly can. Using the four spiritual laws, God loves you, has a wonderful plan for your life. Get as many people as you possibly can. Jesus Christ had the masses following him in John chapter 6, and he summarily turned them away. Yeah. I mean, yeah, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood. I mean, they left in droves. Just think of all the people he could have got if he was a Joel Osteen. He could have got them by the bajillions, but uh, he he turned them away. All they wanted was free bread. Have him be a king and make the free bread for him. One of the most amazing books I read, you know, uh, that turned my mind around was John MacArthur. He had his book called Hard to Believe. Yes, I like that book. It is it is hard to believe. It's not meant to be easy to believe. It's meant to be hard to believe. So hard that's impossible. Gee, at the end of that, good. That's a good reading of John six, and at the end, there's only a few left. And Jesus, the disciples, and he said, are you going to go? What did Peter say? Where shall we go? Only you have the words of life. Dear saints, do you want the words of life? Or do you want somebody to tell you what you already believe? And I pray that we have a hunger for those words of life because they are words of eternal life that are uniquely coming from the Savior. I'm going to get to another slide, two in one day. <laughs> this is a record recently. <laughs> Acts 13, 7, and 8. Now there was this Simon Bar-Jesus who was Jewish, false prophet. We're already told what kind of a person he is. He's a false prophet. Who was with the proconsul Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence. This man summoned Barnabas, Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. Now you see again some of the irony that we 
became, became used to in Luke, people that you would have expected would want to see the Messiah, people in the synagogue, don't listen to him sometimes. But then unexpected people do in the Gospels. Samaritan woman, woman with the issue of blood, Gadarene, who was healed in Luke and who wanted to follow Jesus. And he said, no, go tell all your people what great things God did for you. The miracle was a sign of Messianic salvation. It wasn't just for therapy. It was for the gospel. So here's a a guy who uh, was a pagan and it's called a man of intelligence and he summoned them to hear the word of God but Elymas the magician so his name is translated was opposing them seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith so there are, there's always a battle in Luke X the truth is preached there's a negative reaction many times not always and there's a battle with the forces of darkness. Now, this is thematic, and you can see it all the way from the beginning of Luke, where it's predicted what Messiah is going to do by the various ones who appear there and speak, angels and so on, to the very end of Acts, where it says that Paul told a Roman authority what Jesus told him in Acts twenty six eighteen to turn the people from darkness to light, from the kingdom of Satan to God, that they might receive forgiveness of sins. Repentance for forgiveness of sins is to be preached to all the nations. And this is thematic. This is necessary. Jesus came to make it possible for all different peoples, Jew and Gentile, to receive forgiveness of sins. And we can never help anybody if we create a message that would imply they don't need that. That as long as you're sincere, that's all you need. And that's always going to be an issue. We need to preach the blood atonement. We need to preach the need for forgiveness of sins. And so here's somebody who is a possible powerful person who's interested. Now in the Greek, the word turn, by the way, (laughs) there are people out there telling us that repentance has no place in gospel preaching. Oh yes, I get nasty emails from them. And I, and I get renounced as somebody who teaches salvation by works because they think repentance is a work of man. And if it's necessary for salvation, then we're teaching salvation by works. But if we read Luke Acts, we see that in all the rest of the Bible, for that matter, but it's my job right now to be teaching Luke Acts, that repentance is granted and the means God uses is the Holy Spirit convicts people for this need through the preaching of the gospel. And they say, well, we should just say repentance is no more than giving mental assent to facts about Jesus. Then we wouldn't call that works. 
but that's not what the term means. And they said, well, it doesn't show up that much, and Paul doesn't teach it. And actually, one guy even says there's no gospel in the Gospels and Acts. The gospel doesn't show up until Paul at some point in the middle of Acts. I'll go to you in secondary. And so if those people find my articles, they rebuke me. They tell me I'm a false teacher and that I believe in works and that and it just goes on and on and on. You know, again, the reader doesn't have the privilege of determining the meaning. Here's what they miss. And I've written back and said, do you realize that the term in the Greek, diastrepho or epistrepho, to turn, is used synonymously with repent? Well, they hadn't thought of that. Well, look at this. And then I can show verses where both terms are used in the same context, showing they mean the same thing. So to turn is to repent. To turn from darkness of light to the kingdom of, of Satan, to the dominion of God, the dominion of Satan to God, is to repent. And it's not done through human ability. It's done when the lightning bolt from heaven through the gospel comes into the heart and mind of a wicked sinner like Saul of Tarsus who wanted the Christians dead and light penetrates the darkness. The gospel is supernatural. It's not sociological. Okay? Yes, Brother. Uh, I, this might actually kind of support what you're saying, too. I was taking a lot of classes long ago from someone who was a Hebrew scholar. So some of you guys might actually be able to say if this is true. But I wrote down, and it was etched in my brain, that in the Hebraic thought process, in Hebraic thought, to believe means to obey. That that's the Hebrew thought, is if you believe that you live that. You, you don't just, they didn't have that separation like we have in the Greek culture, our Greek uh, thought processes. But, but to believe means to obey. You know, the debate, Eric, is about what comes first and why. See, works-oriented religions say you obey first, and then eventually you become pleasing to God. Whereas the gospel says that faith obedience, regeneration, salvation, liberation, freedom come as from grace by God's powerful work. Okay, so if that's what we mean, yes, because it talks about those that don't obey the gospel, meaning they didn't believe the gospel. Did I say that accurately, Eric? Okay, Lonnie. Yeah, these <clears throat> people that are saying you don't have to repent. I mean, what what is their lifestyle like? I mean, you have to have the fruit of the Spirit. The, you have to exhibit the fruits. If you're a Christian, you exhibit the, the some fruit. And if you're just living like the world is, if you're continually sinning, so these people... They continue in their sin or what? Actually, that book that... Somebody mentioned the book, Hard to Believe. Yes, I read that too. John MacArthur deals with all of that in, in his book. Okay, all these issues. And I thought, he, I thought it was a very helpful book. No. <laughs> There's different versions of it. 
there are people who are taught that if you raise your hand, go forward and say a prayer and and, then sign a card and put it in the back of your Bible, then that's your proof that you're saved. Changing anything else is shows that you want to be a really good Christian. Okay. Well, and well, so then you just have this process of trying to get the saved who have a card in the back of their Bible to act like they're saved when in fact they really aren't. Yeah. So then they keep having these backslides. There, when I was a, in the Assemblies of God, I had some problems with that when I was in it. I went to this church in Ames, Iowa when I was a new Christian. There was a lady who so couldn't find assurance, literally got saved every single Sunday night. Every night. Sunday night, I'm here to get saved. Next Sunday night, I'm here to get saved. Next Sunday night, I'm here to get saved. Why? Well, because she would struggle with assurance, and I, I don't think I'm doing well enough. And, and so then there was the idea that you have a secondary experience, which in this case was baptism of the Spirit. Yeah. Well, then if you come and get the Spirit, now you're going to have victorious life. And so there's these steps and processes. And frankly, what matters to us is what's being said here. Now, Eric and I read a book, and we're we'll probably, I don't know, how are we going to do this? Maybe on the radio? In here, David Peterson about sanctification. Most of the terms about sanctification in the New Testament are positional. Christians are those who are sanctified. And Peterson, I just started rereading his book yesterday. I bought it when I was in seminary, and it's still out there. He's actually got a commentary on Acts I use. So Eric is going to use the term transformation. Because all Christians are sanctified in the sense they are a holy people. Holy to the Lord. Okay, as, as it says. We are set apart for God because we're his people. We're commanded to act like it. So if you stick with us through Ephesians, we'll get to the point where almost every verse is telling us to quit acting like the Gentiles. Right? Um, okay. However, I, ju- I just want to say that through the Holy Spirit, one can be saved through an altar call. Something like that happened to me. Okay. But, I mean, it's not because I went through a certain protocol or whatever. I, I said a prayer or whatever. I, I just, somehow I was touched by the Holy Spirit. Yeah. And I don't know. Yeah. It was my I, time. And Lottie, that's here a good, I am. that's a good observation. And I've said this for many years. God will use an imperfect presentation to save people. Here's what happens, Lonnie. You may go somewhere and they talk about Jesus and you need him and you need to accept Christ. And you go and do so and you're really converted. Here's what I believe. All those who are converted, even if it was through an imperfect presentation, and many are, are born again with a hunger for the truth. No matter where or how or what. 
And I have met people who came to Christ in Word of Faith churches and later realized it wasn't true. That's right. And came to hear more of the truth because they heard about Jesus and he died on the cross and so on. God can use a lot of things. But what I'm looking for when I get my, the emails is a hunger for the truth. And people that contact me about demons often become converted because they, say, they all say I'm a Christian. And so I write back with the gospel. Well, what do you know about the gospel? And then we go back and forth. And then later, some said, you know, I don't think I really knew Christ until after you told me those things. Oh, yeah. I thought I was a Christian. Others become a, a Christian, but they hadn't heard good teaching. Right. But if there's no hunger for the tr- truth, what does it say in Thessalonians? They, they were deceived because they did not welcome decomai, Greek, the love of the truth so as to be saved. If you have a love for the truth, you'll be excited when you hear it. Does that make sense, Lonnie? I'm not doubting somebody's salvation just because they went forward at an altar call. I'm not saying for sure they're saved because they went forward. If they love the truth and they love Christ, then they're saved. Yes. And then if if Bob wants to keep picking on me. uh, You're so fun to pick on. (laughs) I know. Uh, I didn't know anybody here 30 years ago, but 30 years ago, I guarantee you, I was not looking for a God, the true God, a false God. I wasn't looking for anything, and it it just happened. I remember so, when you showed up at Sunday school. Yeah. Oh, and also, I, had a, I have a real good idea for the church when you were talking about the lady who kept getting saved week after week after week. Like, you know how all the stores, like Walgreens and Target, they have... Uh, 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 members like are you a rewards club member oh. we should have the church with the rewards club member <laughs> anyhow <laughs> Brian showed he, his story is about how he was an enemy of the gospel and he came to Christ one more thing quickly from Scott and then we gotta uh, I was just gonna up. comment on Paul, uh, Saul's salvation was nothing to do with his will was it <laughs> no uh, actually we're, are we going to talk about that? Yeah. God now, arrested him. Eric is going yeah, <laughs> no, he was, he had already made his decision. He wanted a Christian's dad. And Jesus intervened and things changed. We're going to see some echoes, by the way. As we go forward here, there's going to be a guy struck blind. Like Saul was. There's a lot of things that happen. You can do it yourself. Read Luke Acts as a two volume work. Look for the reviews and the previews and the echoes. And as you do that, you'll see what Luke is saying. It's so exciting. Jesus in the synagogue, the irony, he's reading about himself. There's no big deal that somebody read that prophet because they did that. But he says, today it's fulfilled. I'm, that's me. That's shocking. Can you imagine having been there? And then they want to throw him off a cliff? Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for fellowship of the believers and for our chance to open the scriptures together and study and learn and grow. Help us uh, always to maintain a love for the truth so that what you said can change our thinking so that we think biblically and that our changed hearts and minds and thinking would change our behavior so we live in a way to bring honor to you 
and not to bring shame to the gospel. Change us in accordance with your promise we ask, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.